In this episode, our Talk Winnipeg Professional Development Series hosted a pitching an agent or publisher session with Carmen Wells from Shelf Made Creative, Katerina DeBaker from Great Plains Publications, Janie Yoon from House of Anansi Press, and Meg Wheeler from Westwood Creative Artists, as they share what agents and publishers are looking for from emerging writers. I'm Carmen. Uh, thanks for having me. I guess I was really excited to come on this panel because I've worked in many different aspects of this industry and I've seen authors come in and out of it and what it takes to get noticed by a publisher and an agent as well. And so my job now is really to help authors to craft their work in a way that will get that attention. And so I was really excited to come and see you guys and answer your questions and see what it is that writers really feel that they need to know through so, something like this. I'm with Great Plains and with the that's which is a local press and I guess I just wanted to be here to um, meet local writers I guess and I know we all have local stories to share that have a broader reach and so I just wanted to um, meet all of you guys. I'm Janie Yoon. I'm the associate publisher at House of Anansi Press which is uh, I think maybe we might be the biggest independent publisher or very close to uh, in Canada now. It was founded in 1967 by the poet and children's uh, book writer Dennis Lee and Godfrey, whose name I can't remember. I knew and it's on the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that. Okay, yeah, please, please. Um, David Godfrey, apologies, who's also like sort of an experimental fiction uh, writer and you know some of the early books we published were um, poetry by Michael Landace and Margaret Atwood, the Quebecois author um, Marie-Claire Blay and so it's sort of a small press that was uh, highly uh, literary fiction, often uh, experimental poetry uh, and non-fiction, non-fiction that sort of leaned academic. Our current president and publisher, uh, her name is Sarah McLaughlin. She started maybe 15 or 16 years ago. And there were three people in the office. And now today we have about 35 people. And we are still very well known for our fiction uh, and our poetry, our nonfiction. We've really um, have made, we've had some success with people like Tanya Talaga, and we do the CBC Massey Lectures. And we also have a crime line and a lifestyle line and um, uh, an imprint that's just short story collections. So we've essentially made ourselves into like um, a a broad publishing house that hopefully can uh, service all different kinds of readers. But we maintain quality and excellence. I'm Meg Wheeler from Westwood Creative Artists. I'm an associate agent there. There are seven of us uh, working as agents. The The agency was started in 1994, 1995 by our CEO, Bruce Westwood. And we, Westwood's bread and butter used to be literary fiction, but in the past few years, we've sort of diversified what we're doing a bit more. And we represent authors who write everything except really academic nonfiction. So some of our clients include um, Rohit and Mystery and Yeah Martel, Dave Robertson, who was just in here for the previous workshop. And I think it's great to see so many people in here. And I think one of the reasons I really am I'm grateful to be able to participate in this kind of event today is that I think publishing and how publishing works is quite opaque. And 
So to be able to answer as many questions as possible is really my goal. So I'm looking forward to that. Great. So do we want to, I mean, unless you guys want to do a kind of top five don't do and a top five do, or we could just open it up to questions. Let's open it up to questions. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the brave person who's going to go first? There we go. Okay, so uh, I actually self-published a novel, and I'm, and uh, besides maybe publishing another uh, edition of it to, to a traditional publisher, because I also have a sequel, an unpublished sequel, I'm also interested in getting this book into the English curriculum for high schools and maybe even university and college. Uh, what advice would you have for me? Yeah, the question about um, self published books then making leap comes up fairly often. So if you could look at that as a, as a topic. Self-publishing was interesting because people like E.L. James started out self-publishing. And then, so I find what happens, and we've, I don't think we've ever, I don't know that we've ever actually taken on a self-published book and then published it ourselves. I can't, I can't remember. But, um, but I, I will say that often the trends, certainly from what I see with the bigger houses, is that like the book has to start gaining traction mm-hmm. on its own. And it reaches a certain level, then they come in and then do a repackaging, republishing, and, and try to pump out as many copies as they can using their distribution and sales and marketing resources. And then in terms of academic, I mean, that's interesting because it's something that we're talking about in-house as well. It's, it's a totally different thing. And that's why there are academic presses like Oxford University mm-hmm. Press or McGill Queens University Press. And with our books, uh, certainly the course adoption happens because there are professors in high school teachers who come to us uh, because they've heard of the book and they want to use it for their curriculum. So I don't know much about that otherwise. We have not had much luck taking self-published authors and finding them traditional publishing homes in the past. Usually the self-published book sales aren't strong enough, we find, for a traditional publisher to really get on board. On the flip side of that, often if they're too strong, then the publisher says, well, it's already found its audience. What can we do for it? So it's kind of a really tricky spot. Academic books are not sort of my wheelhouse, so it might be a little bit different, like Janie mentioned, with the academic presses. If they had a, if they had a course instructor that wanted a book, that might be a different story. I'm just not familiar with that sort of trajectory. Yeah, our books that have been adopted by courses have generally been uh, championed by the, a prof or a teacher rather than gone specifically into that. I can't speak for university presses, but I suspect that they, you know, they know what courses require and need, and they probably have a specific vetting process that it goes through. So that's a little bit of a different, which is a trade press. We don't have that kind of vetting, but um, we do get adopted, or sometimes our books do get adopted by courses, but it's more through the efforts of a particular prof that has particularly enjoyed it or finds it, found it useful. We, if, if you give us your email when you leave, last year we had somebody from the University of Manitoba Press, so we could you connect you by email and you could ask her specifically about mm-hmm. university I presses. Would, I would love that. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you all my contact information. Okay, all right. Next question. I think that if you're a first-time author, it's like meeting someone, you have one chance to make a good first impression. So I don't think you're doing yourself any favors by trying to 
rush anything. This is like a, it's a craft. And I don't care if you're writing something very commercial or something very literary because each type of book is a kind of, you have to craft it in, in a hopefully very thoughtful way for whoever your readers are. So my recommendation is, yeah, to take as much time as you need to, to, to really make it something that you're really, really proud of. And the other thing is, is that once a book is acquired, it's going to be, you know, edited. Or if you're very lucky and different publishers want to work on, you know, publish your book and you get to meet with them, you have to be very, very confident about what your book is about. Because sometimes someone might say, I I think I love it, but I want to do this, that, and the other thing. And I, I truly believe that you have to, you know, your best chance at success is to work with a publisher who's going to respect respect what you're doing and who understands what it is you're doing. I think new authors often are very eager to get their work out there, but you have to know that it's okay to change from your first draft. People get really held on to their first or second draft, and when you're going through the editorial process before submitting to agents, it can morph into something you didn't intend it to, and that's perfectly fine. You're in great company for authors that that's happened to. And going on from what Janie just said is, by the time you get to a publisher, you also have to have gone through an agent. And if your agent isn't at that stage where they understand what you're trying to sell or what your story wants to be, then they're not going to have an easy time selling that to a publisher either. I just wanted to pipe in and say that if your book is a work of nonfiction, it doesn't necessarily have to be complete to come to an agent. Sometimes nonfiction work, you need funding to be able to finish the book, to finish your research. So in those cases, you need to have a very strong sense of where the book is going to go. And there does need to be sample material, but the whole thing doesn't necessarily have to be finished to to pitch an agent. And I guess I would pipe in that as a small press, we do accept unagented manuscripts, but because of that too, we, we, we do need them to be finished so that somebody has a, you have a clear idea of the direction that it goes to and that the person reading it has a clear idea of what the uh, book is about. And yeah, so we can visualize where it would fit in our list and the editorial strategies and that sort of thing. And again, for nonfiction, that's not quite as critical because it is Something might require research or it might be on a very topical subject that needs to be, yeah, we need to talk about right away. So, but certainly for fiction, yeah, finished manuscript is where it's at. Yeah, my question concerns agents, I suppose, and the Canadian market in particular. How essential is it to have one? And secondly, what will an agent do for me that I can't do for myself? And the third part of it is (laughs) how important is it that it comes through an agent? Question in three acts. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. You have I to justify your existence. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Right. <laughs> I have to do that a lot. <laughs> I think probably the biggest benefit to having an agent is our contact lists. We know, and it is our job to know, as many editors at as many different publishing houses as possible, not just in Canada, but in the United States, the UK. Australia as well. So when you have an agent, you get their their address book. Um, so that's a big benefit. Every agent works differently, of course. So some agents are more hands-on than others, but a lot of agents work very closely with their authors to revise before a book goes out to editors. So it's just another round of editing that your book will get and another set of eyes that you might miss out on if you go directly to a publisher. 
I know there are lots of authors who've had success without an agent. So it's not, I'm not here to tell you that you have to have an agent or you won't be a successful writer. That's not true. But I do think that we, we bring some quantifiable benefits to writers. I don't know if someone else wants to tackle the publishing unagented side of yeah. things. Well, I know from the publishers I've worked for, part of the, like the big five, the you know, HarperCollins, Penguin Random House, they now tend to have the policy of not accepting unsolicited manuscripts. And part of that is because even with agents, they're getting so many submissions and having to actually take the time to read these manuscripts carefully because we don't want to just brush over something and realize that we've made a mistake by not looking at it carefully enough. So we need to have that layered down submissions. Plus, going on from what Megan said, the agents know the what style of writing the editors like. They'll read a book and they'll say, I know who will like this. I know who's going to want this one. And they'll send it out that way. And then likewise, the editors, when something comes in from an agent that they trust, they're going to get excited. They're going to know it's going to be something good. So it really is beneficial to have an agent. And I know that it seems a little difficult to think that you can do it yourself. And why do you need to like get part of your royalties to an agent and all that? But it's so hard to do it on your own. And with so many writers out there, it's so beneficial to have that backing for you. We do both. So we will accept unsolicited manuscripts through our website. We have a kind of a special program that handles it. And we, we have someone who, you know, goes through it and then brings forward anything he thinks is promising to the editors. Because we actually found Rowie Hodge through the slush pile. And he won the Impact Award. And, you know, he just won this big Writer's Trust Award. And he's, you know, an amazing... Uh, Lebanese-Canadian author. And actually, Zalika first came through the slush pile as well. And our editorial assistant brought her, her work. It was just too short. So we just <laughs> 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 so don't ever submit anything that's like 90 pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, oh, where's the rest of it? This is a great sample. And like, yeah, that's it. And they're like, no. Uh, so don't, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so we will. And then, you know, we... Like big houses, they have this sort of monetary cushion in that they sell books. They represent all the pub- a lot of publishers from the UK and US and sell it into Canada. So they make income. That We don't have that. We just make money by what we publish, mm-hmm. right? So, so we are open to working directly with authors and to representing them at home and abroad as well. I think the one thing that working with an agent or at least somebody who's like a lawyer who's familiar is looking through the contract I think is because the contracts are you'll never have seen one before and it seems that it's quite unique to publishing right I don't think anything else is like that yeah Yeah, I don't think so and I know I can think of an example with one of our current clients who went unagented to his publisher for his first book and it was the first in a series and they the publisher bought contractually all the film and television rights, which we wouldn't have agreed to if, he, if it had been agented. So when it came time for him to try and find a producer or a production company that wanted to make his series into a TV series, normally we would handle that. We have a film and TV department, but his fir- first book in the series we couldn't do because he'd sold those rights to his publisher. So it's just contractually things that seem small like that, but actually in the long run can turn out to be quite big. You may think that 
you might not see royalties, but surprise you do. And if you didn't get the best possible royalty rate, that makes a big difference. Well, in light of what's been coming out about a Chizine Publications, it's a, a spec fiction publication in Canada, and they've been taking advantage of their authors for a long time that has come out that way. And so that's some that's really scary, I think, for authors because it's so discouraging when you've been working so hard and wanting to get your work out there, and then there's people like that who will take advantage of you and not care about that. So that that is also, yeah, very important to have an agent to be able to look over those contracts and know what they're looking for. And not just with TV and film rights. Nowadays, publishers always want to go for world rights. They want to be able to publish your book everywhere under their umbrella. But with an agent, they they try not to do that, if I'm correct. That's that's no longer really common practice where they're, they'll sell either Canada rights and then they'll keep finding your home in different countries. And I think that's really beneficial for writers as well. Before we just move on to the next question, I just want to, Meg, if you talk really briefly about what the agent-author uh, relationship is like, because I think it is actually pretty misunderstood. And then Zalika said this question. Sure. We sort of sometimes are authors' therapists when they are having trouble with their publishers for one reason or another, whether it's just taking longer than one might expect to get their edits back or they hate the cover, but the publisher has approval over it. We can be sort of a sounding board in that way. We will go to bat for the author. If they if they hate the cover, we'll try and have come to some sort of happy um, medium between the publisher and the author. Um, so we're really our job is to go to bat for our authors. Even We don't have to necessarily agree with the author if we love the cover, but they don't. It doesn't matter. That's not our job. It's our job to do and stand up for our, do what our authors want us to do and stand up for our authors. So, I mean, sometimes an author-agent relationship is also a friendship. Sometimes it's purely business. It just depends on the agent and the authors involved. At Westwood, we do try to retain rights so that we can sell them in other places. We're not always successful at doing that, um, but we do try. And then when I'm not looking after my domestic clients in Canada and the United States, my other hat as the international rights director at Westwood, I travel to different fairs to try and sell rights to our clients' books to publishers to translate in Germany and China, for example. Um, so we also provide that service to our authors. The question over there? It's not easy to get a job at a publishing house. And as you say, it, it's most of them do work from Toronto. And so it's not really a situation. If you, if you want to work for a bigger house and smaller houses, sometimes they operate with just a couple people. Like it's not a big operation where they need editorial assistance or production editors or things like that. But in Canada, it's unfortunate, but they usually only accept people who have done publishing certificates or at least a couple courses in it. It's not the case in the UK or the US. I'm not sure why we do it that way here in Canada, but it is a really hard place to get your foot in the door. And then editorial wise, there's few and far between jobs for for that side of publishing. I was just telling everyone before we came in here how silly I felt leaving the great job that I had at HarperCollins <laughs> to come back to Winnipeg. But you know, Winnipeg's my home and it just, it felt like the right time. And so I'm 
grateful that I got to have that experience, but it is definitely a challenging one to get into. They're not, as Meg said at the beginning, it's a very opaque industry. They're, they're not, people aren't that open to talk about or give you tips. The way I found out, because I don't have a typical background in this industry. I don't have an English degree like most people do. I have a politics and a journalism degree, and I wanted nothing to do with either of those things. So I looked into book publishing, and it took me a year to contact people and try and find out how to get the job. And it was someone from Anansi, actually. She doesn't work there anymore, and I can't remember her last name, but her first name is Caitlin. She saw that I was looking at her profile on LinkedIn and contacted me and said, I can tell you're looking for a job in this industry. I'm here to tell you that the only way you can do it in Canada is to go to a publishing certificate and get an internship and then get a job. And so by the time, it took me about two years to get the job that I just left in the whole grand scheme of things. So it's, it's difficult, but I guess not impossible. <laughs> I mean, part of the reason is because it's, this is not like, the film industry where there's just, you know, oodles of money sort of being made. Um, so, you know, like, I don't know, on the adult side, because we have a kids publisher too, you know, we published 50 books a year and I was telling them I have two acquisitions editor, editors and me. So the three of us are doing all the substantive editing. Then I have an editorial assistant yeah. and a managing editor who's just trying to keep all of us on schedule. Mm-hmm. That's it, you know? So, and that's what we can afford to do. And then in terms of the internship, the reason why you have to go through publishing courses, because I, I think in Ontario, what had happened is that um, I think certainly after the financial crisis, people were just hiring interns and making them work for free. So it, was reg- it had to be regulated. So they had to have gone through some kind of a course to justify it so that companies weren't running on sort of free labor, which we never really did. I mean, we don't pay a lot, but like, Mm -hmm. but it was, and it wasn't happening exclusively in our industry. So that's what happened. And that's why. And as for Winnipeg, I know there are several publishers here and there's, there's often positions available, but the thing about them is that they are often very part-time. Our office has three people and every one of us is part-time and that is not really an exception so yeah I think it's be willing to you'd have to be able to do it part-time or freelance and those sorts of things is at least in Winnipeg is kind of the way to get in I think but I think like anything it's just persistence Mm -hmm. too you know like yeah I started out as um, an assistant to an agent in Toronto and then I couldn't get a job in editorial, so I, I, did, I did a couple of editing courses. And then yeah. I was lucky because I did an internship in two weeks and the editorial assistant job came up. So this was very lucky. But like, I think doing a copy editing course, I think everybody oh, yeah. should do a copy <laughs> editing course because yeah. people actually don't understand the rules yeah. of grammar and like punctuation. Yeah. And not just in writing or in editing, like just everybody. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not, it's, to- it's useful, right? So... And then substantive editing is useful, is somewhat useful, somewhat useful. I don't know if it's totally useful, but a little bit. And so just even doing those two things and being able to put them on your resume. And then I would just encourage you to send out emails to people and just say, you know, this is the schooling I've had, or this is the experience I've had. I'm very interested, you know, 
can I come in? Are you looking for an assistant? Can I read your slush pot? You know, and, and just because you have to basically just start garnering some experience, right? And then, and then go. I think publisher, one of the things publishers, I will say, I shouldn't say this for everyone, but often they're not great at training people. It's like kind of you come in and then just, you got to like just come in and pick up and just do things, you know, and, and figure it out. So if we have someone who we know has, has had some experience, then it's, it's less of a jolt for them mm -hmm. if that happens. I'm trying not to do that, but, yeah, but it does happen often. Yeah, and I should say I started at Great Plains as an, with an administrative role that mm -hmm. eventually evolved into an editorial one. So, yeah, they do evolve. Next question. We publish children's books, but we don't do picture books typically, so I can't really speak to that. I feel like the, there are some publishers in Winnipeg that do, and they often have a roster of illustrators. But yeah, a lot of the, some of them will have, are small enough that you will be paired with an illustrator already. But I think most, most places have a roster of, of illustrators. Do you? Yeah, I think that's how they work. It's amazing how we don't, it's so separate, <laughs> but um, I believe that they have illustrators that they work with and will try to pair them up with the storyteller because I think with picture books, the aesthetics is so, so important in determining like the feel and the tone of the book. And then in some cases, you know, if it's a, you know, you, even if it's an author or an illustrator we work with or somebody we haven't worked with, maybe they'll say, I have this story and this is the illustrator I want to work with and here's a sample of, of what we've done. I think, I imagine probably it goes both ways. But I do believe that children's, a lot of children's picture book publishers do like to have a certain amount of control over who the illustrator is. When we've submitted picture book texts, we, if the manuscript comes to us from the author with illustrations, we often have to ask them to send us just the text because publishers want to, want to be able to assign an illustrator to it. So it's better that it's just the words that you're sending than an illustrated version of the manuscript, unless you yourself are an illustrator, because we do represent illustrators as well. Not very many, but occasionally. I'm just wondering how much we need to respect that single submission rule that so many publishers have. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to sell a um, middle grade and a picture book, several, and you, you send it in, you wait three months before you can send it to somebody else. Like, because that, it often says, you know, single submission only, but that can take a long time. It's, would you respect that or would you just no, say, you go should, ahead and you send should it send it to everyone. Yeah, we don't, yeah, I don't we think don't, we say we that. Don't we, have, it's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair to writers. The, yeah, we like to know, but it doesn't so matter. So say I'm submitting it to you, but also to other people as well. If you're submitting it to, to me, that's, but I, I, it doesn't, it doesn't affect whether, whether it gets read or not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and often interest from one then can trigger interest from others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you get interest from one, you should certainly share that information mm -hmm. with the others as well. Right. I have kind of an odd question that's probably very narrow, but I had some really, really good success with a young adult novel about 18 years ago, and I've done a lot of other writing since then. I'm getting back into the young adult field again. I have a novel. How can I draw on my past success? Or does that really, I mean, it's so long ago, does it matter? Like, it was shortlisted for the, you can say it, the German Literature 
Okay. <laughs> was one of five books on that mm -hmm. list, the also list, some good reviews. But is that so long ago that it doesn't count? I don't think so. I don't know what it would mean to if, whether it would work for marketing, okay. but it does work from an editorial perspective because it makes me, you have experience writing, you know the publishing process, you have experience working with an editor. That's what that says okay, so to me. So yes, I, I would think so. I think it's relevant to your yeah. biography, but I think what, because it was so long ago, like the booksellers and the media yeah, who might've been, known it, mm -hmm. they probably don't work there anymore. Yeah. That's 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 yeah. the difference, right? Yeah. So but the fact that you had a hugely successful YA and that actually it won or mm -hmm. was up for foreign prizes as well is it's absolutely mm -hmm. relevant. Yeah, that's relevant. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm maybe missing people the end because they can't see. Is there any questions down there? Oh there we go. Hi, I'm Matthew. I was wondering if you could give us, each of you give us your top one or two tips for pitching uh, or book proposals. Sure. Um, so for, yeah, for pitching or uh, book proposals, one of two things, I mean, apart from what your manuscript contains, I would do your best to come up with comps for your, your manuscript. Agents will do that for you as well for the most part, or they'll try to, but if you can already guide them to what you're, you're hoping your novel will be framed as, it'll make it a lot easier for them to pitch it to publishers as well. And if you're, pub if you're pitching directly to a publisher, then that's also something they're going to want to see and make it in the first line or two, who you're comparing your novel to. The other tip I would say, this isn't really in regards to pitching, but in order to make your bio more appealing, I would just say to just constantly try to publish any sort of short stories or anything in magazines. Any, anytime you can list that your work has been published in any sort of literary magazine online or otherwise, that's going to be a big trigger to publishers to see that you, you have the experience and people have read your work and, and um, have appreciated it enough to have it published in. Yeah, I guess that's... Uh very much the same thing. I guess part of it would be to know your book and to know your who the market for your book is. That would be sort of the first tip. And then I guess the second one would also be know your publisher and who you're pitching it to, especially if they accept unsolicited manuscripts. You should, um, you know, if they don't publish poetry, then don't send them a poetry manuscript. Like those, so, and it's, and, you know, we were talking about comps and stuff too. And maybe it's just because it's flattering, but it's always nice to know that you've read some of our books and you feel they fit very well in our list. Um, it's always good to know too. I think your, yeah, your bio is very important. So the more your work has been published, then that's very, very helpful to us because when we think about how to market a writer and their work to the greater world, that's always very helpful. The other thing I would recommend is when you write your description, you have to write a very good description of what your work is, be it fiction or nonfiction or whatever. And it has to be very clear and very precise. And like, you know, one or two paragraphs, it should read the way you read jacket copy, you know? And uh, because I think that, and you have to think quite carefully. So when they talk about like knowing who the market is and who their readership is, so... 
you know, if it's a book that's based on the true story of somebody who survived the Second World War, that's, you know, and then they, you know. So right away, what that signals to me is true story. It's a historical novel. It's got a big World War II backdrop. So things like that. Or if it's, it's a novel about, you know, two sisters who have a falling out and then, you know, find their way back to each other or something. Right away, I know, okay, the conflict is between two sisters. Plus, it's probably kind of a domestic novel. Like, so this is the way we try to think about the books when we say, who is this? So if like that would be like a kind of a more concrete example, if that's helpful. Sort of echoing what's already been said, but do your research, even for example, at Westwood, several agents do represent writers who write the same genres. So do your research and try and figure out which one of those people you think would like your book the most and target that person in particular. And it never hurts to say, you liked this book by this person that that agent represents. It means that we know you read our bio, which is helpful. This is much less important, but if you have contacts in the industry, don't be afraid to drop name drop them. You don't have to know them by any means, but if you do and you want to let us know that those people might be open to providing a blurb for your book or an advanced quote, that's just a good thing for us to know. There is, um, the Association of Canadian Publishers has a list of all publishers in, in the country um, by specialty and by region. And so if you get that list, then you can also go to the websites. Uh, a writer was just telling me that he got his agent and publisher by reading the, the acknowledgement in Patrick DeWitt's novel mm-hmm. and then writing a fan letter about how much he loved Patrick DeWitt's novel. <laughs> the agent and his publisher, and that's oh how he gosh. got the agent. The U.S. agent was because, uh, mm-hmm. because he wrote the fan letter. And I think it was that kind of very, um, very specific. I have to ask you who that is because I know the agent and we published the author. No. I'm so curious. <laughs> yeah. Don't um, tell me that your book is the going to be as popular as the Bible is probably. <laughs> have lofty ambitions, but that's probably not the tactic to take. I think this is sort of common sense, but be careful that you're addressing your query to the, the right person. You're querying a lot of people at the same time. So it's easy to sort of hit forward and maybe not adjust all of the things in the pitch that you should. If your book is excellent, We'll overlook that, but it just is nice when they're addressed to the right person. <laughs> I know people who will not look at your book if you get their name wrong in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We get a lot that are addressed to dear sirs. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so, um, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. For me, one of the biggest things, and, and Janie already kind of said this, but for your pitch to be short, when it gets so long, because you're reading so many submission emails throughout the day and trying to figure out like which one you're going to be reading next, it gets so long, you're, you, I don't know, I blank out a little bit. I had to go back. I'm like, wait, what? What happened here? And then likewise, with your manuscript itself, I always try to tell my authors that kind of the sweet spot for word count is around that 85 to 90,000 word mark. Many authors go over that, especially first-time authors. I've had to edit down manuscripts from 140,000 words, and it's quite painful. And it's a big turnoff for me if I see a manuscript that length. 
especially if you can't grab me in the first like 20 pages. If you're that long, then I immediately will shorten my expectation. Usually I'll, I'll put it to like 50 or 80 pages when I'm reading a manuscript and seeing if it's grabbing me. But if it gets that long, then I'm just sort of like, if in 20 pages you can't get me, I'm not committing to this. Any other questions? Mm, no. Not not for fiction. I think yeah. just for nonfiction, you have to have a tier, clear table of contents. Yeah. Because we need to know what the content is. But yeah, jacket jacket copy length synopsis is, uh, that's more helpful, I think. I think if someone reads your jacket length copy and is really interested and they want to know all the plot points, they'll just ask you for them. I wouldn't necessarily include them in your first email. And it's also remarkably helpful to have a call, if it's a freelance editor or an agent, actually talking about it out loud really helps you form your ideas of what you're trying to say rather than just being locked in your head and trying to write it all down in a cohesive way. So even if it's not with an editor or an agent, go talk to someone, a friend of yours, or sit down with a stranger at a... I listened to this podcast of a screenwriter who did who does just this, where he goes to coffee shops and he's like, can I please pitch you my my book idea or my movie idea and tell me, be honest, if it's, if you think it's worthwhile. And because they're strangers, they'll for sure, they'll tell you. How important it is, is it, or do you check to see what kind of media presence people have? Um, and is that important to do before your book? I mean, before you start submitting a book or is it something that you prioritize needed to be built after, uh, you know, somebody takes you over. What, or does it not play into it at all? I mean, social media is a weird thing. So I think if it's like something very, I mean, if someone has got a, you know, a million followers because they have this thing on cats or whatever. <laughs> but no, it's true. And then, you know, or like we did a book, a cookbook called Thug, Thug Kitchen. And they're American, they were anonymous. And my colleague looked up, and this was quite early on, so she looked up their social media presence and they had like 40,000 followers on Facebook, which at the time was a lot. It's like a million now or whatever, the equivalent. So we didn't know who they were, and, but we put in an offer and it's probably our best-selling book now, but it's that kind of book, right? And then sometimes, you know, if I'm, you know, looking, interested in approaching a journalist and I'll see like how many followers they have and that sort of thing. I think like a lot of writers are not natural to that communication medium. So we also understand that. And I, I remember when Twitter first came, I sound so old by saying that, but anyway. Um, but, you know, I remember, you know, at our office, it, there was a lot of, pressure for everybody in-house as well as the authors to all have a presence on social media. And now what we've discovered is if you're just not good at it, don't do it. And if you're not comfortable with it, like don't do it. I just refuse to do it because I have social anxiety. So it's like, I can't, I can't try to be very clever in like 15 words or whatever. So, so it's more like, it's more like I would say, usually kind of more commercial things or nonfiction type things where social media seems to play more part. I don't I, know. Yeah, I don't think if your book is fantastic and everyone loves it, then I don't think that, and you don't have any followers on Twitter, mm -hmm. I don't think that will kill your chances. But 
it's possible if, you know, if a publisher might be kind of on the fence about whether they want to acquire you and you have that following, that might push it to the more positive outcome. What about Goodreads? No, I, as far as I know, it's not that influential. In, ter in terms of sales and, and talking to marketing and, and sales, we'll look at the ratings, but presence on Goodreads, I don't, I've never heard that really discussed. I've never checked, when someone submitted something to me, I've never checked if they have a Goodreads account. Other questions? I think it depends on whether or not the publisher is willing to leave their offer on the table for long enough to allow you to approach agents. I have had authors submit, they have done a multiple submission to several different agents and publishers all at the same time. And a publisher has put forward an offer and then the author lets the agents who have it know. And that makes us read it faster because we know they don't have that much time. The publisher has to be willing to leave their offer on the table for a certain amount of time. So I think your first question is to the publisher, how long will you leave this on the table for? And it depends on their answer to that. It's not too late. If, if they're willing to leave it on the table for enough time, then um, it's not too late to try and get an agent on board, I would say. I think you have to do all of it as well, because if you don't, I don't know if you're writing a memoir and you feel like you have to ask people if it's okay to represent them. And then if they say no, then what are, we're buying, some, you've sold us something based on a false premise, right? So you have to think of it like that. So I think, you know, it's, it's good to, to have everything cleared. And then that way you have the freedom you have to write what you want, but you also know boundaries if, if for some reason something isn't okay. My understanding is publishers do hire freelance proofreaders quite regularly still. So I think it is still a path uh, into the industry. I, a long time ago when Twitter was brand new, I saw that a poet that I liked had a collection coming out with a small press on the West Coast. And I was doing my undergrad at the time and I sent a private message to the publisher to say that I loved the poet and did she need any volunteer proofreading or copy editing or anything like that because I did have, I had taken some courses during my undergrad in those areas. And so I volunteered for a short time with her and then she hired me I, to make it work. Like logistically, I had to become a consultant. She hired me then and was paying me to do a lot of different things like typesetting and proofreading, copy editing, more substantive editing, a whole host of things. And I did that for a few years, uh, three, three and a half, I think, but it didn't pay the bills. It was just something that I did in the evenings when I could sort of thing. She, it was sort of a one person show. So she had freelance people doing a lot of things for her. And that is what made me decide to more, that made me know that I wanted to pursue publishing more seriously. So I went back to school, um, which I understand not everybody can do, but that just gave me the confidence that I knew that's what I wanted to pursue for sure. So then I committed by going back to school. How valuable are conferences in making personal connections? 
I think they're pretty valuable. You never know the person you meet could be the exact right person that you need to know. Likewise, it could be a waste of time, but you may, you may just meet that one person and it really just takes one, whether it's one agent who says yes or one editor at a publishing house who says yes. So I think they can be quite valuable. And the more you do it, the more practice you get at pitching your book, which never hurts. We have found that with our alumni of our mentoring programs, when we, we do these workshops, uh, several of them have signed with agents as they've met or with publishers they've met through through the um, through the workshops. So we found it, uh, at least in our in our core group, to be beneficial. Okay, this I'm sorry, <laughs> but let's go with one question from somebody we haven't asked a question for, and then we can linger for a little bit in the chat before the next so, event. So what are agents looking for right now? What's trendy? What's popular? Uh, what do you look for even in the authors like you have previously published? Or I, I'm just curious, what what is popular? That's a really good question. It's a t- bit of a tough one to answer. I think you don't have to be previously published. Some agents probably prefer that you don't have a, a publishing history because then there's no track record that you might need to overcome. A nonfiction still seems to be selling to publishers better than fiction does. Current affairs seems to be selling well. Also nonfiction written by specialists as opposed to journalists, if if that makes sense, seem to seems to be doing quite well. Personally, I would love to see sort of a sweeping intergenerational novel. I'm on the lookout for that, if anyone has one in their <laughs> drawer somewhere. I think the biggest thing that I've found is if you have a unique voice and like a really energetic and enticing voice telling your story, even if it's something that they're not looking for, that voice will draw you in. So I think that's something to really keep practicing. And that goes back to, you know, constantly writing, you know, short stories to publish in magazines or anything. Just keep working at it, keep practicing, keep exercising those writer muscles or whatever we call them. But uh, I think if the voice is unique enough and it has something to offer, then no matter what it is, we'll get pulled in. One, we have one more quick question. Okay. And then, we're, then we have to wrap. When we sign on a manuscript, if it exists, we like to work on it, if possible, six months. Because, and then six months later, we would publish it. Because the sales need material so early. So we always create an advanced reading copy that gets sent out to booksellers and to media and then maybe influential writers. And ideally that all goes out six months in advance. And also if we have a very polished, complete manuscript that far in advance, then we would start sending it out to international publishers because because of the way the internet, everything is very leaky with Amazon and other, well, mostly Amazon, but... um, (laughs) The ideal is if the, particularly with the U.S. and also uh, to a certain extent the U.K., that you're publishing simultaneously so that territories are all kept separate instead of people buying in copies, which is not supposed to happen, but happens all the, all the time. So it's a very long process in terms of when a publisher is going to make you an offer that, that can take a long time. It kind of depends on the shape of the manuscript and how much editing the agent needs to do with the the author. Also, I think one thing 
a lot of writers maybe don't know is that agents and editors alike, I don't read during business hours. I have too much administrative things to do. So my reading is done in the evenings and on the weekends, which means it takes longer. So it does prolong the process, but there's just too many other non-reading essential things that I have to do during regular business hours, which I think is true for a lot of agents and editors, I think. Great. Well, please join me in thanking our speakers for coming. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening.